Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael and we are here today for faculty meeting 157, Role Play versus Ability. And this is still part of our ongoing series where we're looking back at some of the original shows that we did uh, back in the long, long ago. And this is a look back at Dungeon Talk episode 22. Joining me as always is my co-host Tom. Tom, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. I feel like we should have called this one is is role play versus rollability. Gotcha. Like roll, okay. Rollability. Like I feel like dice. That's something that certain dice have better rollability. You know, rollability. Okay. Yeah. All right. All okay. Right. Well. Well, when we when we do this again in ten years and we look yeah, back I'll think at this it. show, yeah, 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 we can we can okay. remember there as well. Okay. Uh, so uh, quickly, we don't have any new patrons to announce this week. In fact, we actually lost one. Uh, they contacted me. It was a you know life thing getting get in the way. They still love us. They still want to support us, but they just can't afford to do so at the moment. And I just want to say to anybody who is you know supporting us in any way, we never take that for granted. If if your situation changes, absolutely no no need to apologize. If you're no longer able to throw a couple bucks our way, totally, totally understandable. Having said that, the one that left was one of our larger tiers, so we did drop substantially. So if anyone out there has been on the fence thinking about maybe supporting us, now would be a great time for basically as little as $3 a month. You can really support what we do here by going to patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. Or there's other ways if you don't want to do the subscription service or you don't really like Patreon, um, we could use a little boost uh, to kind of help make things up. Uh, and also our patron of the week this week is Mundangerous, a.k.a. Shane from the Total Party Thrill podcast. Uh, probably one of the first people I became friendly with when I first started the podcast and started, you know, Twittering and he and I had a chance to play some games together. I've been a guest on his show. He's been a guest over here multiple times. Shane's an amazing person. I really, I'm so happy that I got to know him and consider him a friend these days. And I really appreciate the fact that he throws a couple bucks our way because I know he has a podcast and they have a Patreon and, you know, we, they have people that support him and he takes some of his own money, throws back our way. It, it means a lot. So thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. I'm a patron of theirs. So I feel like it's, you know, it all balances out. <laughs> yeah. Someone once told me that all Patreon is, is a bunch of creators passing the same money back <laughs> and forth to each other. That's so true. There is, there is a bit of that. So, so, um, before we get too far into the show, we always like to take a moment to take a step back and say why we're here. So the point of these faculty meeting episodes that in the conversation that Tom and I are about to have, that we hope that somewhere in there, there might be a, a nugget of wisdom buried that you, dear listener, can take and apply at your tables and make your games more fun for you and your players. But we understand, of course, that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. There is one piece of advice that we feel is pretty universal. And Tom, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you're playing, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse. As long as you and the people at your table are having a good time, you're doing it right. So with that out of the way, let's jump into the RPG news. Okay. So what you got for me, sir? So it's been a while since we've done this, so I'm sure there is uh, something that we've missed in between then. But uh, I will say that uh, I did just lose my notes so i'm pulling it back <laughs> up uh no so all right some some big news here all right so big one just announced the other day D D has been D D beyond has been bought by watsy 
Okay. So this is, uh, this is big because it was like a $155 million deal. All right. That is massive. All right. In the, we don't like, we don't see those kind of deals in the RPG industry. We just don't see them. Well, that's because Wizards of the Coast is the only company who's got 155 that kind million. of cash to throw around. Yeah, yeah, this is true. But yeah, they gobbled up D&D Beyond. So this is news because it's going to have impl- implications in the industry, especially if you're a D&D player. Because it, D&D Beyond was owned by Fandom, and they licensed all the Watsy stuff and did their own thing with them. But Watsy is trying to develop their own tabletop RPG tools and uh, D&D Beyond, whether you like their price model or not, they had the easiest to use tools. It was just, it was simple. And so that lots of people used it. But with that, there was a lot of integration with other stuff, such as Twitch has a D&D Beyond plugin. Roll20, you can plug in D&D Beyond. Uh, you can also, within uh, the the Foundry, same thing. All right, so there's all these different things. But with Wizards, uh, doing their own stuff. Uh, I'm predicting that a lot of those plugins are going to go away. We're going to stop seeing support for them or wizards will go so far as to issue cease and desists, which we have seen them do before. So they will say, you cannot do this anymore. You can't plug in D and D beyond none of that stuff, which is going to be really kind of bad because there's such good seamless integration between Twitch and D and D beyond and roll 20 and D and D beyond. And that's just going to go away and we all know already roll 20 doesn't have the best standalone features themselves it's useful with plugins so a lot of people's uh usefulness with roll 20 is going to go out the window until watsy gets their own uh tabletop tools so hopefully they will wait until they have something before they just start cutting people off right so and I do want to say that that we we are supposing here that yes. this is going to happen like based on watsy's history that's probably the most likely situation that they're going to very quickly sort of, you know, silo their stuff away. But it's also possible that they will not right away or they may just do their own licensing agreement and it still be available on Twitch and Roll20. We will have to wait and see. But very likely that that's going to have either go away or have some extra hurdles to jump through in the future. Yep. So it'll also be interesting to see how they handle uh, digital releases of the book because they now own D&D Beyond instead of will they still make you buy the book twice, uh, buy the print copy and then with D&D Beyond, you had to pay basically full price for the digital copy of the book. And will that remain? My guess is no. My guess is that they're going to go to some diff- a different pricing model or they're going to go to discounted models based on if you buy books, you get discounted copies of the D&D Beyond. So uh, wait and see, I guess. So, but this is big. So, That's big news. I mean, there's obviously if they're willing to spend, you know, 140 to $150 million to acquire this, it's, it's profitable for them to own it. But I have to say that, you know, people love D&D. But there are also people who hate D&D. They hate Wizards of the Coast. And one thing they could do to really, like, throw some goodwill into the world would be to say, if you buy our books, you get the D&D Beyond free. Like, you know, like a lot of other companies do that. Smaller companies that don't have the foothold or the the bank account that, that Wizards of the Coast does, that's kind of standard. 
Yep. You know, Evil Hat does that. I think the Monty Cook Games does that. If you buy the book, you get the PDF. That's just part of the deal. Um, I think Fantasy Age does that, or Green Ronin does that. There's like so many other companies do that, and the big boys, as it were, on the field don't. And it would just be such an easy thing for them to say, you know what, now we're going to do that too. If you buy our book here, and if you don't want to buy the books, you know, you can still buy the digital versions. But I just, I feel like it's kind of a no brainer, but it makes me worried that that's not going to be what they do when it's such, it seems like such an obvious move for them. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So big news. Next thing I want to talk about is the old gods of Appalachia, as we say, um, and Appalachia, thank you very much. It's you, Michael, you're from Kentucky. Um, I'm from the Appalachia. I'm, I'm born and raised in the foothills. So the uh, this is a new uh, tabletop role playing game from Monty Cook, and it is based on the Old Gods of Appalachia um, podcast. And it is a cipher system game, and it is a folklore, uh, weird uh, horror style game. I want to talk about this because one, I love this podcast. Michael, have you ever heard any episodes of this podcast? Never, ever heard of it. You would, I think you, you would like it. It's, it's a, it's a story form podcast where it's, it's a, it's a narrator telling a story, almost like, think, think like a campfire story, but it's all kind of like the first arc takes place in Barlow, Kentucky in a coal mining town. And it's it's got this really weird uneasiness to it, uh, and now they're making a role playing game, and it almost has a million dollars now on Kickstarter. So I think this is news because this is a million dollar Kickstarter of a licensed IP that is not D and D, all right, and it's not a what you would consider a traditional big. IP and we had we've had this conversation so many times you know the Dark Souls stuff which we'll get to all the other RPG stuff but this just proves that if you have a good IP you can use a different system and you will honestly do probably better than you would by using the 5e license so we talked about this before and I just want to say that there was uh, there's this uh, guy pretty sure it's a guy on Twitter and he often comments on our episodes, like just about every time we release something, he'll throw out. I think Philpot is his name, maybe Michael Philpot on Twitter. My apologies. I'm sure he's listening because he does every time. And he was saying after that last episode that there is some one-to-one comparisons where you can see that companies that did their own version and did a 5e version and that it was pretty apparent that the 5e version actually did sell better. So we had been kind of supposing that 5e wasn't bringing people to the yard and he's saying that there's pretty clear evidence that it actually does. I didn't research it because I'm lazy, but I have no reason to to doubt them. So it does seem like there is at least some actual evidence out there that some cases, companies that have dual released their own version of a game in a 5e, the 5e has actually overperformed or outperformed their own version. But that doesn't neglect from this, which is still a non-D&D IP game that is having a very successful Kickstarter. But I would also point out that Money Cook Games has a history of very successful Kickstarters for the Cypher system in general. They have their own following, yep. and then you have this IP following. So it's not D&D, but it's also not like if I decided to do this and like, hey, I'm going to, you know, the RPG Academy is putting out this game. I don't think that we would be anywhere near this either. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I'm, I'm curious to see, like, I have no desire to ever play a Cypher system. I want to play this game, though. All right. So for this, and I think this is where you're getting a lot of people are coming in is 
they want VIP. The same thing goes with the Avatar game. That brought mm-hmm. in so many people who had no desire to play Powered by the Apocalypse, but they wanted to play Avatar. So I think what really this is what going to show people is that D&D is not necessarily the moneymaker anymore. Yes, it will, but you don't have to do it if you don't want to. It's if you get the right IP, you license it correctly. I mean, free league getting the one ring is another example of this and it's free league. Yes. But I think this goes to show if you're a company, you know, and you can get an, a good IP, um, maybe look at other systems. So I'm still saying Warner brothers. I know, out, right? Or, sorry. Not Hanna Barbera. Sorry. My apologies. Hanna Barbera reach out wacky races. Yeah, okay. I'm down. I want, I want that IP. I could do some fun stuff with it. We could. All right. It would definitely involve a D12. So uh, the other update, speaking of licensed IPs, all right, I don't care what you have to say, Michael. I am, I, I feel so justified right now, which made whether that's right or wrong, but Dicebreaker did a very good uh, breakdown of the Dark Souls RPG release, all right? For those who don't remember, I'm sure you do, Dark Souls was a, it's a fifth edition uh version of the dark souls video game that they made and uh it had a lot of you know people commenting on it when it was first announced like hey this is not gonna work what are you doing steamforge they have a very very bad history of licensed games um and everybody said hey wait and see well we have waited and now we have saw um and it is bad all right and so dicebreaker breaks down what actually happened here based on the reddit so there's a big Reddit community, and I feel bad. I really do. I feel bad for them because this community was waiting for this book, and they mm. wanted this book badly. And then they got the book, and it. I hate to you know say I told you so, but I told you so, and it's not good. Uh, and it kind of just shows that this was a it had this book was really quickly released. Uh, like there was like no think about when we first started talking about this. It wasn't yeah, that it was, long ago. No, it wasn't very long ago at yeah, all. Yeah, and they pumped this out. So, but if you look at Steamforge, which people don't want to follow the money, all right, Steamforge got five point five million dollars in private equity money a few years ago, and you were kind of you kind of like, well, okay, well let's 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 look and see what why who's giving them this money. This equity company, they kind of specialize in companies that can kind of do pump and dump products. So these are products that are, they they basically, they earn a lot of money up front and then they're forgotten about. And that's kind of Steamforge's model. I mean, you think about it, they did a Resident Evil board game. Did you ever play that, Michael? Made a ton of money. Of yeah, the Dark Souls, they did a Dark Souls board game. They did a Devil May Cry board game. They've done all these other licensed board games. They just do them. They, they, it's all more like collectible items. Like if you're a Dark Souls fan, you'll buy this, you'll put it on the shelf. It looks good, but right, that's kind of it. So I think this just goes to show, uh, just be careful, you know? And anyway, I probably, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm way too happy about this. I say like, you're, you, you keep saying that you're, you're not happy <laughs> to say, I told you so, but you're smiling so, as you say it. I know it's because people were yelling at me so much. Like, Hey, you have to wait and see. And I'm like, well, these people have a, they have a track record. I can use that as evidence. So, and it wasn't just me. There was a ton, there was a, 
it was like a, what was that Obi-Wan Kenobi quote is as if a, a thousand million people crying out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the voice is suddenly silenced. Yeah. And we were silenced, but uh, no longer. But I think this is just a, it's this weird shift we're seeing right now where we're having these, I think this goes back to the old gods of Appalachian. We're seeing this, these really high quality releases that are not D and D. And then we're seeing a lot of, you know, just kind of middle of the road D and D products. So, I mean, that is consumerism at its core. People are going to go towards what is being high, what's high quality. So we'll see if this trend continues. Very much so. So also Steamforge has the Devil May Cry license. So I'm waiting for that RPG. That, that'll be announced any okay. day now. All right. All Do right, you have so, any Action 12 cinema updates? Yeah. So just a couple quick things. So uh, so Tracy, uh, still waiting on the Ashcan version. They've been in communication with me. I understand what's going on, but it, it has been pushed back several times. So I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting getting it. I have one publisher that I've been talking to about potentially just like not going to crowdfunding and just going mm. to a publisher and seeing if they would want to publish the game. They do want to see the Ashcan version when it's done. So that's part of the reason why I'm now anxiously awaiting it so I can get it into their hands and, and have, you know, kind of see where that goes. Um, we did a stream of it not too long ago on the Rook and Rasp Twitch channel, which is now on the Rook and Rasp YouTube channel. So if you want to go listen, watch that, you can. Uh, I shared that with the publisher as an example of how the game might be. Uh, they did watch it. And they're like, yeah, that seems you know seems like a fun game. So why don't you send us the, the what you have? And so that's kind of where we're at. So again, cart in front of horses. I have absolutely no idea if they are going to be interested or if they're just, you know, maybe morbidly curious. But it, it's exciting to me to know that someone at least wants to take a look at the the PDF when I have it. If not, then the, the, the plan would still be to go to crowdfunding later this year. Speaking of that, again, quickly, uh, a catacon August 16th is when the uh, Kickstarter is going to go live. We have a pretty aggressive goal this year. I think it's certainly reasonable, but it's a little higher than it was last time because we lost money last time. So I need to, I want to have a little bit of more of a cushion this year. Um, so we got to get a little bit higher, but we also have VIP badges for sale this year and we didn't last year. And that's usually a big chunk of our change. So I think, I think we'll be fine. Um, and I am actively working on what will probably be my second game thief down and out. I have a cover all but locked in, um, that I will be sharing very soon. And I am very excited about that. It's, it's obviously modulated and grown since that initial sort of fever dream, uh, creative session that I pounded that out. Uh, I'm very excited. I think the changes I've made are going to make it a much more complete and fun game. So I'm excited about that. And then finally, you know, the faculty meeting we had a few weeks ago, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it, Tom? Like we had a really good time, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to do it again. Okay. Uh, in September, we're going to have another faculty retreat. This time it's going to be in Oxford. Uh, Rocky knows a place that Basically, it's a community theater. It is super duper cheap, and it's close to Dayton, so I can actually go there, and like Ryan should be able to make it. Hopefully, Brad can make it. I think, unfortunately, you have some work stuff going on the particular weekend, so you and Judith probably won't be able to join us, but yep. uh, we're hoping Chris and Michael might come down from Redemption, and I'm just we're going to throw it out to the same people. If you're a patron, 
you will be invited if you were a VIP backer of, of an Akatacon, you can make it. But we just, uh, I just had so much fun. I'm like, I don't want to do that again. And Rocky's like, well, and he comes sliding in uh, with a silver platter with this room that we can use. It's close enough for me to crash with someone and not pay a hotel bill. I'm like, F yeah, let's do that. All right. Uh, so, so more details on that soon. So with that out of the way, let's talk about Dungeon Talk episode 22. Okay. So this, all right. So context here. This was you... Evan and Nico, all right, and this is a two-parter, all right? Two-parter. It's not because, and I'm very glad, this is where you guys are starting to learn, all right? Because before, you would have just rushed your thoughts, or you would have just released like a two-hour-long episode. What you did, it's not like, it's just you guys just kept on talking, so you guys decided to break this episode down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this first topic that you all talked about is the whole idea of role-playing versus role-playing character ability. So uh, this all comes from a conversation between yourself and Jared, which is I would I, which is kind of confusing, which once we dig into it because I don't, I'm just I don't see Jared like taking these, these these same thoughts still. but the whole idea is how do you role play your character? All right? Do you role play your character based on, how you want to role play your character, or do you look at your character as a set of numbers and stats and role play your character based on those numbers and stats? All right. So, uh, yeah. Uh, general thoughts about this, Michael. Do you remember this conversation? I, I'm pretty sure I do. I remember Jared and I having a pretty intense conversation at Gen Con yep. one year about... Once you get into combat, because and I don't remember the entire uh, conversation, but I remember one of my points was, I think the decision to go into combat is or should be more important than any actual decision you make during combat as far as role playing your character. Like, I think that is a bigger decision or should be. Now, I know, again, D&D, combat's kind of an expectation. So when you're presented with the opportunity to throw some dice and kill some goblins, most people are going to take it. But I want to live in a world where the decision of combat or not combat is an intense decision that weighs on your character. And so if it does, then once you're in combat, your goal should be to end that battle as quickly as possible. And anything other than that is kind of possibly bad role playing because if I like, if I take the opportunity to like quip and like, you know, my, my enemy has fallen. So I, I allow them to get up and get, get their sword back. Like that's a great moment in a story, in a movie, maybe even in a game but it actually makes no freaking sense because if that goblin then turns around and gets a nat 20 and kills my character, and then because I'm not there, the forces of the goblins overwhelm all the other characters and leads to a TPK because I'm being like this arrogant D-bag, then is that what I should be doing? And I think I'm not necessarily taking a point. I'm just sort of trying to remember the conversation that we had that, you know, once you're in combat, if your goal isn't to kill things as quickly as possible, are you actually playing correctly? Oh, this is, so this is such a weird thing because this is not a, I feel like this is not a Michaelism. Like this, this, 
idea of role playing correctly or optimal role playing. Mm. The like, because I don't necessarily know if I agree with that. I because there's going to be situations where you don't necessarily. I don't have an active decision whether we enter the combat or not. All right, like you're talking about, like sometimes combats just happen. All right, we go into the wrong room kind of thing. And we don't know that there's going to be a combat, but we're now in this room and we're in this combat. So what you're saying, though, is that the optimal role-playing decision across the board is for you to just uh, end that combat as quickly as possible. Well, again, I'm I'm not necessarily saying this is what I believe as much as I'm trying to present the argument as 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 I remember it, and I do. I mean, there is a point of me, that, a part of me that still does believe that that you know, once you're presented with the opportunity to go into combat and you decide that yes, we are going to go into combat, then you probably should be doing everything in your power to defeating the opposition as efficiently as possible, because this is a life or death situation. And you know, in the fiction of the world that we're in where we are warriors and have weapons and we go out and we kill things and take their stuff. If we've decided to kill these things and take their stuff, if we don't just as efficiently as possible execute our tactics, that's kind of a really dumb thing to do. Now you can argue that maybe your character isn't that smart and doing dumb things is what they would do. But I I think for me, what I might actually believe here is it depends on the game that you're playing. And I'm pretty sure we were talking about D&D at the, at the time, but I also mean the tone of the game. So if you're in my game and I'm running and you decide to do something that's not super tactical but super fun, I am not going to punish you for that. If you decide to you know, separate yourself and allow yourself to be separated or be surrounded by multiple enemies – probably not going to use flanking against you. I'm probably not going to use overrun rules against you so that, oh, you, you're now surrounded by three goblins. Your character's going to die. I, that's just not the type of game I run because I want you to do those super fun things and, and quip and make bad decisions because I think that's fun. But I believe that in the game we were playing, because we were at Gen Con, I think we were both players in that game, it was the type of game where if you had separated yourself the DM was probably going to kill you and go, oh, you, you know, you're now surrounded by three goblins. So they both, you know, these two get flanking and now they're going to overrun your character's dead. So I think it comes down to what do you want from the game and who's running the game and what type of game you're playing. But there is a type of game where if you're not using, you know, sound tactics, you're probably doing a bad job. That's not the type of game that I would run. So this kind of led into another conversation where you were talking about like how you actually role play your character, whether it's in combat or outside of combat. So you use the example of the rogue. So Jared would say that he's a ranged rogue. So he picked a rogue and he optimized all of his stats to, you know, super high, super high decks, um, maybe a medium charisma, some intelligence, not a great constitution. Uh, and so based on those stats, here's his personality. All right. And that's what he would do. So very much leaning into the tropes of like this swarthy um, character who's very kind of, uh, you know, you know, what I'm, you know, like the whole tropes of like a rogue, like Han right. Solo or that kind of, character whereas you would say that 
what I'm what I would do is uh my personality is first and is not dependent on my my class and everything. So I can play a very strong barbarian, all right, with a super high strength and everything. But, you know, if I want to be like an intelligent gentleman, I can still do that, all right? Um, and Jared disagreed there. So I guess where do you still kind of, how do you feel about your stats defining how you role play your character? Yeah, I I still kind of would, I'd say I disagree on that because usually I come up with a character concept first, like, like who is this person and, you know, what do I want to do with them? And then, you know, we create our characters. Usually we do standard array now. That's just, that's almost always what I do if I'm running a game. But if we're doing a game where we are going to roll, but I've already decided that I want to play a thief, but I roll stats and I end up with like stats that don't really make sense for that character probably would just roll with it and I would be a very strong or, you know, maybe a very charismatic rogue or, you know, a wizard that doesn't have super high intelligence. As long as it's high enough to cast spells, I don't necessarily care if I have an 18 anymore. So that's just me. I, like, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but when I come up with a character concept, usually the idea of who this character is, you know, based off of a character of a book or a movie I've seen or, you know, something like that, or somebody I've always wanted to play comes first regardless if the stats actually work for that character or not. So that's just my process. So I, I'm a very similar process. I don't ever even, especially with D&D, maybe at the beginning when D&D first came out, there just wasn't as many options, and maybe I did it then. But now I absolutely have this concept in my head, and then I will go look at the different classes and subclasses and races and figure out, how can I make this concept? And then I will use that. So I think like one of the examples that I've, I've used before is that one of my, I wanted to make a character based on one of my favorite characters in a book. All right. And this character, what they do is they have the ability to summon weapons out of nothing and they can fly and stick to walls and do all this cool stuff. So, I was like, well, what makes sense for this character? And I wound up being a a blade warlock, all right? Because they can summon weapons, I can get flight. And but I didn't play my character like a warlock. You know the whole idea of like I'm beholden to some sort of ancient deity or some sort of being. I kind of shoved that over to the side and I just kind of all of the abilities fit this character concept that I wanted to do and it worked out Great, but I wasn't. This was not like what you would consider a traditional warlock at all. Same thing goes. I've done. Uh, I've done a character who was a a staff fighter who kind of roamed around the desert and kind of his whole thing was he would lead caravans. All right, you would think, okay, well, that's kind of maybe a ranger. Wound up being a cleric just because that was kind of where the stuff fit with what I wanted to do. So. I guess it all depends on how much you want to take the built-in lore of the class, or you're just willing to throw that out and you just care about the abilities in the system mastery there. And I think either both of those are totally acceptable. Whatever you, wherever you find your fun for your character, I think that totally makes sense. I'm a big fan of reskinning, you know, abilities and like, so sure, like I'm playing a rogue, but 
maybe like the way I play them is like of a fighter, but I just use the rogue abilities and, you know, I don't say it's a sneak attack. I just say it's, you know, it's like a type of attack. I learned it's like a martial art that my character yep. knows how to, how to maximize opportunities. So we call it something else, but it's, you know, mechanically it's this. And I think that's, I think that opens up the ability for you to play D and D or any game that has that level of crunch so much more cinematically. And just to me, it's more fun that it, like, I can I can reskin and reflavor anything. I think we've used the example before of like a barbarian going into a rage, but rather than looking like, you know, an incredible Hulk sort of rage monster, maybe it's more of like an analytical Sherlock Holmes style from the, you know, the Robert Downey Jr. movies where right before the battle happens, they sort of like see what's going to happen. And so their their rage in this case is just time slowing down and they're able to do these like surgically precision strikes. And that's what, you know, that's how their rage is implemented in the game. You still get the bonus to attack like you would as a barbarian raging. But when you describe what you're doing, it's more of bullet time. The world has slowed down and I can see everything that's about to happen. So my strikes have a, have a higher precision to them. That's why I get the bonus, not because I'm a rage monster. And I think that's totally fine. Yeah, flavor it that way. It's it's one of the it's actually it's one of my favorite things about D and D. And I don't really play a whole lot of D and D anymore, but I still think fifth edition for me, I still get a lot of fun from taking a character concept and finding a way to make it. It's like this whole idea of system mastery. I just I and I would encourage anybody who hasn't done this before to try it out because it's really fun to say I want something that does this. Which rule can I find in the book? And that's not you making up a homebrew rule. Like you can find the rule to make it fit that character concept. So I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Shane and the Total Party Thrill podcast again, because one of my favorite things that they do is at the end of most of their episodes, they do the character creation forge, which is they take a character concept. Like one of some of their most recent ones are Carmen Sandiego or Judge Dredd. And they're like, how do we make Judge Dread in D and D Fifth Edition? So uh, they'll make, and so you don't role play the different because they do a lot of multi classing and stuff be, in order to make Judge Dread. So they're not like role playing a barbarian; they're role playing as Judge Dread. But they have taken these different pieces from these different classes to make that character, and it's a lot of fun. I enjoy doing that. So. Yeah, I remember when when they were first putting their their game, their podcast concept together, they sent me and along with other people like, you know, this is what we're thinking about doing. This is our first episode. What do you think? And I said, I will never use that section, but I think that's the best thing that you're doing in your podcast. I think that for like trying to get people to listen and play along, I think that's hugely insightful and valuable, but the way that I play characters, I'm never going to use it. So it doesn't matter to me, but I think it's, I think it's gold, straight gold. I played Goku in a game and I literally took their character creation really? version of that. So, yeah. uh, no, I think I would, yeah, to kind of summarize this is, I mean, Jared had fun, you know, role playing a rogue, like a rogue, but don't, I would say, don't feel like you have to be stuck in that, that those kind of constraints, just because you're a rogue doesn't mean that you got to be this super shady person. You know, mm-hmm. do something different, you know, whatever, do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. As yeah. long as you're having fun. You're doing, right. having fun. Yeah. you're doing okay. it right. Yeah. And, and I know this isn't exactly the topic, but I'll just throw it in here quickly. This comes up a lot on Reddit and Facebook and Twitter about optimization. Like, can you 
optimize your character and still role play your character. Yes, of course you can. Yes. But I would always, I always throw this out as a think about it moment though, okay? So let's say that you have optimized your character to the hill. They're a fighter. They have these weapon specializations. They have all the feats that go with it. They maybe even have a magic item that, that matches the weapon that they are best at. So when it comes to combat, they use this weapon. They are forced to be reckoned with. And then in the game, you find out that you have this connection to this historical figure. Maybe it's a mother. Maybe it's a father, whatever, a historical ancestor, that they were renowned with this obscure weapon and you are, you find that weapon. Like this is your great, great grandmother's weapon, your great, great grandfather's weapon. It's a weapon out of straight out of the lore, but in your hands, you are not proficient with it. It is not the weapon that you have the best stats with. It is not a magical version of the weapon you have the best stats with. Would you use that weapon from a role play standpoint of I'm going to use this weapon, even though statistically it's not even terrible. It's just not great for you to use. I would in a heartbeat. I don't care that I get negative two instead of plus eight. I think that would be super cool to, and you know, over time I can rebuild that proficiency once I get to higher levels. So if if you're the type of person who's like, of course I would not use that weapon because it makes no sense. I would argue that then maybe there is an optimization versus role play argument to be had as a theoretical. I'm not necessarily looking for an answer. Just it's a thought experiment. Okay. Thought experiment noted. Okay. Um, the next thing you guys were talking about was a Gen Con. You're still talking about Gen Con because you had nope. gotten back from Gen Con. You kind of ran through some stuff. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is I want to see if we if you had any uh, spicy takes, Michael, on what makes a good con game. I have some spicy takes on what makes a bad con game. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So what makes a bad con game and what makes a good con game? game let's let's kind of wax profusely on this so pre-generated characters are a must yes unless unless you've communicated ahead of time and it's part of the process and you know hey i need you to bring you know a fifth level character or a 20th level character whatever the case may be do not under any other circumstances that i can imagine unless character creation is super simple talking like wushu write three things down okay go i do not want to spend any time at the table in a con game rolling a character. Same. No, some exceptions. Like when I run Marvel, we create characters at the table because one, it's really quick. Two, it's kind of a goofy fun because you're rolling on the charts and you get these powers that don't make sense. And I've I've worked that time into my schedule. I know how much time that's going to take and we're still going to be able to get through the adventure anyways. So that's the only time I would do it is if, if rolling characters is actually part of the fun. But in a D&D game or a Pathfinder game, no, I do not want to spend even a second creating a character at the table. Just give me a pre-gen. I'll fill in the name. I'll change the gender if I want to. I'll reflavor all the skills and powers and abilities if I want to. But I do not want to roll a character at the table. No, definitely bring pre-gens. I hate, I hate spending 45 minutes to an hour making characters. It is because I'll make my character really quickly and... Some people aren't as experienced as they need help, and that's no fault of their own. But it's like, I don't want to sit there while they do that. I will say this, though. Um, There are games where it is 
where part of the play experience is making the character. Like you mentioned, Wushu, and that is perfectly fine if mm-hmm. you want to make the character there. We, the, I had a really good experience playing Legends of the Five Rings at, um, a Catacon one year. And, but that was, it was being run by, um, Katrina Ostrander. I always, yeah. yes, who's one of the designers of it. And, she was able to help us make characters with like in like 10 minutes because she had, she had used like powered by the apocalypse trifolds and everything. And so, but that added to the game experience and it was really quick. So unless you have intentionally thought about how is this character creation process going to add to the experience of everyone at the table, then don't do it. Secondly, you need a really good starting scene with a good hook so that as soon as we start playing, we know what to do. Like, I don't, I don't want to be sitting around trying to parse out, oh, wait, are we supposed to go talk to somebody? Like, I want to be on a bridge that's about to fall. I want to be in a tavern that's on fire. I want to be on a, in a caravan that's being attacked. I want it to be very clear um, of what we should do right away and then get into that. Um, I also, I want to start with some role play. Like, give me a few minutes to interact with each other as my character. Even if that's like, you know, right before the caravan gets attacked, you say, okay, you're in the back of a caravan wagon. You've been, you've spent about a week together. Go around the table, introduce your character and tell us something that we probably would have realized about your character over the last week. Are they the type of person that gets up early and does extra chores? Do you sleep in? Do you cook? Do you try to entertain people around the campfire? Just very quickly, you know, give me a couple minutes to get to know your character. Once everyone's done that, now the ogres attack. Now the bridge collapses. Now the fire breaks out. But I want a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of romance before we get to the action, if you get my drift. A little foreplay. Yeah, don't give the care don't give the players a lot of options here in a con game. Throw them on the rails and let them deal with the situations because if you don't, different characters, if characters sense any amount of if players sense any amount of freedom at all, they're going to have this idea and then another player is going to have another idea and then you're going to spend 10-15 minutes talking about what you want to do and 10 to 15 minutes may not sound long, but in the grand scheme of things, within three hours, that's a significant chunk of your time that you just wasted for one decision. Just don't do it. I think a classic example is uh, Jake was running a one shot at uh, one of uh, one of the old events that I used to run at the bar in Cincinnati. And uh, he basically kind of made a little sandbox game and I was one of his players and I kind of ruined it for him. Um <laughs> I, I sent his in. So don't just, if you're, if you're and that wasn't, I didn't do it on purpose, but I sent the game in a different direction than he had anticipated and he had to scramble then. So put him on the rails. It's okay. It's a con game. Rails are fine in a con game. Beginnings, middles and ends are important, but beginnings and endings are more important. Okay. If your game is going to run long or if you need to cut things short, cut out the middle. You need a really good, strong beginning. Give us a good hook. Get us started out. We we know who the bad guy is or the bad girl, what the situation is. We know what we got to do. And we want that final encounter, whether it's a combat or not. But let's be honest, it's probably going to be a combat. We want that. 
I've had so many con games where we get muddled in the middle and we have too many options and we maybe explore the wrong ones, but the GM lets us roll with it because they want us, they don't want to feel like they're railroading us. So we, we track down like two or three bad leads before we get back on track. And then all of a sudden we've only got, you know, 14, 15 minutes left time for the final battle. So then they just narrate what happens because we don't have time to play it out. And so they just, we just listen to the DM describe what the battle might be like. Awful, awful. That can, I could have fun up until that moment, but that's going to ruin my experience. I want my ending. So skip the middle if you have to skip anything. If you run short, just run short. Just plan for it. If you get to a spot and you have a four-hour slot and it's only three hours in, but you get to a good ending, end the game. Just yep. end it. It is... So because people have a great experience and then that people are like, people remember that because it's like they're wanting more and it's, it's so, it's so great. Um, uh, it worked out perfectly this past the catacomb I was running, uh, forbidden lands and the goal at the end was they literally just had to get to a village and sell some stuff. That was the goal. And they all wind up, we, we still had like an hour, but they all wound up falling unconscious because they all got frostbitten and everything. And they were so close to the town. And I was, was thinking, I was like, okay, we could spend uh, 15 minutes letting them all recover based on the rules and everything. And they would get to town and they would do a shop scene or whatever. And we would end right on time. But I was like, it would be so much cooler if they all just, nope, they, none of them survive. They all died. And so I just ended the game. I was like three hours, like, all right, yeah, you guys all yeah. die. If, and, it was just for me, I had a great experience. I know they all had a great experience. And it was. Right. And, and I, I 100% agree with you. But I think as a DM, I try to try to get my mindset of, you know, I've, I've offered, I have, I have sold you a bill of goods that we're going to have a four hour adventure. And I don't want to feel like you didn't get your quote unquote money's worth by it only being a three hour adventure. But I'm telling you from a player standpoint, Yes, I would much rather have a good, successful, what makes sense, you know, everything is wrapped on a really, really nice bow, three-hour adventure than for you to sort of like improv and drag it out and add in some extra encounters to try to get us to four. It's much less satisfying. And I'll tell you right now, someone who goes to a lot of cons, sometimes getting a, an hour is a gift, like it is truly not, yes, I understand the idea of I promised you four hours, I only gave you three, but what you've given me is an hour. And I love you for that. I can go get some coffee. I can go to the bathroom and I don't feel rushed. Yeah. Maybe I can sit down and take a breather. Oh. Charge your phone, check out, check in with your buddies who, you know, outside the con. That hour is probably the best gift you can give me. Because time slots are always four hours, 15 minutes, and then it's a, it's another time slot, which honestly, I, time slots would be so much better if they were three hours and then there was, everybody had a break for an hour and then, yeah. and then, oh, but that's not how they are. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but almost every game that I run at any convention is a three-hour game. So I am the same way now. So I just am. Yeah. If it goes a little bit over, like I'll ask players like, hey, if we run a little long, you know, can we go a little over? If not, fine. But I I schedule my games for three hours, not four. Okay. The other, well, the one that I had was this kind of goes 
from a, I would say, a, for somebody who's going to be playing a game at a convention, do not sign up for a game if there are more than five slots yep. on that game. So uh, just don't. It's too many people. Uh, yep. Yes, you can do that. But, like, that's an established game of everybody knowing each other. Uh, yeah, I know people run seven-player games. It's But it, there's a different, it's a different experience at a con. The uh, Just don't do it. I will never in my life play in a game that's over five people at a con. I think back. This is before pre-Tom being faculty. All right. This was at a catacon. There was, we joke about this all the time in my game group, because it was the same group that I'm playing in now. Um, and the, everybody, we're at a catacon, it's late, and there was a Dread game. And my friends, they came up to me like, Tom, there's a lot, there's slots still in this Dread game. You should come play with us. And so this was before we had like extra signups and everything. You were just kind of like, you just kind of went to the table and there was extra slots. And so I go there. And there's already like 12 people. Oh my God. And I was like, what's going on here? And they're like, and the, the person, Demi, was like, oh yeah, this is a big sort of dread that I made. It's up to 24 people. I <laughs> looked at everybody and I said, all right. And I turned around. I just walked away. I walked away. And it was, I was so glad I did that. It was so funny. And I wound up making, instead of doing that, I went and hung out with uh, Jared and Michael, and we made uh, Warhammer Fantasy First Edition characters for an hour, and it was way, it was a way better experience. Yeah. So I've said it before, like one of my best con games ever was DCC. It was a zero level funnel. I had so much fun at that game, and one of the worst games I ever played was a DCC funnel game. Cause it had eight players. I think they actually let a ninth person set down. It was terrible and I hate it. And, and again, there are probably games that work and you may be a player who enjoys having that many players because of whatever reason, if, if you are God love you, go play your games. But for me and for someone who might be going to the con for the first time and, you know, trying to get navigate things, that's one of the very first things I do when I get a con, like I download the CVS or Excel file is I filter by number of, spots open and anything that's higher than five, which includes six and almost every Pathfinder game is six. I just get rid of it. I'll delete it. I will not even look at a game that has more than five spots. Yep. I uh, agree. So yeah, no, uh, just be careful with con games. I know con seasons right around the corner. So one of the last things I wanted to talk about today was a question that we were going to save until this time. And this is from big out. All right. The question that I wanted to ask answer was this. He sent us a few in, but the one that I wanted to talk about was this idea of how do you define an indie game? All right, because this gets thrown around a lot. Like, oh, this company, they're indie, or back this indie game, or support indie creators. And I think what is indie is changing. So, Michael. First, your thoughts. How would you define an indie game? So probably, if I'm being generous, it's anything that's not D&D and Pathfinder. But then you have a little bit of a substract because like, is Monty Cook Games indie now? Is Free League indie now? Is Modifius indie now? And then you have this explosion of like Twitch, or not Twitch, of Itch, 
where you have people that are just literally making their own things. It's got four pages and they put it up on itch to sell. That's indie. Like that's completely independent game design and people are trying to create their own things. So I feel like maybe it's a spectrum on, on the far end, you have your Watsi and then like in the middle you have your smaller companies, Green Ronin, Modifius, that kind of thing. And then on the very far side, you have someone who just put a four page itch up that is just like a, like the fever dream game design that I had that night. If I, if I put that up somewhere, that would be completely indie on the far side. Yeah, so I would go further and I would say that game companies like Free League and Monty Cook and Modifius and Steamforge, these people are not indie anymore. I they're smaller companies. Uh, mm-hmm. but I think Steamforge is a great example because it's so recent. Everybody was saying, Well, they're an indie company. You can't bash them. All right, you we need to but no, they were given $5.5 million from a private equity company. This is, they're not indie anymore. Um, uh, to me, it's, it's one of those things where uh, indie is, it's hard to define, but I think at the end of the day, it's somebody making a game. It doesn't necessarily need to be a, just a passion project. It, they, they, they can make, it's okay to make money. But once you get to the point where you have a, when you are a like global company with multiple distributor distributor partners, you have all these different pathways that other creators don't have, and you're getting access to private equity money or angel investors in these these income streams that are not your traditional Kickstarter or crowdfunding or Patreon. You're now operating like. It's a traditional business model at this point. You're an you're no longer not even an LLC anymore. You're like an LTD, and so it's just it's one of those things where it's I because I think a lot of companies, um, not necessarily companies. I think it's a lot of a lot of the community will use this idea of well, they're indie. We can't be critical of them because they're just a small guy, um, which I don't think that's the case. And I was pretty honest about my. And we're still we'll need to do our we still need to do our one ring uh review. But I was pretty honest. Yeah. The, the even with friend Francesca when we did our interview, there were mistakes in the uh starter set. And it's mm-hmm. pretty obvious. And so it's because it's a licensed game that they rush because of their license deadlines. And I think it's still something we can still hold we have to hold these companies accountable. But the person who's doing a Kickstarter and they make a hundred thousand dollars, and they're just one person, and they're hiring freelancers to help them out. That that's indie. Like I, so it's it's so hard to put a monetary tag on this. But for me, it, it's kind of like it's just like the stink test. Like if, if somebody has a if they've got a board, and they are operating, you know, outside of traditional funding models, I think it's safe to say that hey, they're no longer indie. Because I think about the company that I work for in my day-to-day job. Um, we're a small company, all right? We're a tiny company. There's like 12 there's like twelve employees, all right? Uh, and we're competing with a lot of bigger multinational companies. And But we wouldn't call ourselves like an indie company, all right? 
we we just wouldn't because we're still you know we're still pursuing the a traditional business model mm-hmm. um so yeah we're a small company in the grand scheme of things but we're not just like some little tiny shop anymore so yeah i i mean i do do get to a point the you know these are still if they're not indie they're still small small fry companies compared to some of these others. And, you know, we don't want to hate on them. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But at the end of the day, you're right. If it's, if the product's got flaws that then it shouldn't have been released yet. You know, you, even if you're just one person doing your own thing, you can hire an editor, you know, maybe you don't want to, but, but then, then don't get upset if people say that your game isn't well written. If you didn't hire an editor, if you can hire an art director, but if you don't have enough money to afford it, then be able, you might get some criticism that your art isn't very good. Or, you know, if you're using stock art and it's just not the best in the world, that's, that's totally fine. But that doesn't alleviate criticism for those of, uh, you know, I don't say us, but those of, people that will spend that extra time or money to do it themselves or, you know, prolong the developmental phase so that they can like, you know, like I, I you know, use Caleb as an example. He did itch funding to make his game better. Like he put it out there, but then when he got his initial, you know, his goal, he paid for like additional editing and layout and made the game better looking. I wouldn't hold his first version to a high standard because we knew what he was doing, but, but now I think his game would be fair game if, if you found typos and stuff because he's had a professional do the editing and the layout. Yeah, I think that it's it's one of those things where it's like, I think for like you, Michael, if you get some stock art in your game, you know, you release it. I'm not going to say like, I'm not going to say like, oh, this art is so bad, you know. But if, for example, Wizards of the Coast, not Wizards of the Coast because they're not indie, but let's say, uh, you know, a company like... Uh, Modifius or Green Ronin, they go out there and they buy some public use art, slap it in their book, and still sell a fifty dollar hardcover. Yeah, I'm gonna say like, yeah, this what what is what are they doing? Like mm-hmm. this, it's totally at that point. It's like, oh, they're just trying to trim margins. So it's not like they're like just. It's not at that point. It's not like, oh, this is an indie creator who they just don't have the money for it. It's like, right. oh, no, 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 they're just trying to make more money. I mean, I think at, at the heart, like when you think of what an indie game is or like an indie filmmaker, it's someone who's operating outside of the established business cycle, business model. But now Kickstarter is a standard business model. So anybody who goes to Kickstarter isn't necessarily indie anymore because, you know, almost surprised Wizards of the Coast isn't in some cases. So I, I think it comes down to, are you an independent game creator? And that doesn't necessarily mean solo because you could have two or three people working on a game, you know, that know each other, friends, that kind of thing and still be indie. But if you have like an in-house art director, then no, you're not indie anymore. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, that's, it's, I think we'll still be having this conversation for the next few years, um, especially some of these indie studios get bigger. So, but mm-hmm. I'm comfortable saying this is me personally. I'm not going to call I'm a free league fan. I'm not going to call free league indie anymore. So, I mean, there's not, and I think that's good. I mean, it's like they are now like they're big, they're, they're, they're big. So, and I think they would be okay with not being called indie too. So, right. Yeah. I would yeah. say as well. So anyway, uh, hopefully Al, hopefully that answers your question. So, but yeah, if any, or at least gives you something to think about. Yeah. This is one where I don't, I don't have an answer. Like it's 
what is indie? Because it's one of those things where we want to put a price number on it. We're like, well, if you made $200,000 on your Kickstarter, you're no longer indie. But Mm. I know people who have run $200,000 Kickstarters and they've done but they have paid they, – they don't really make a whole lot of money on that because it's just one person doing it. So Right. Yep. So anyway, uh, yeah, no, that, that's all I got right now. All right. Well, um, as always, we'll throw it out to you, dear listener. If you did get anything from this episode, if you got a nugget of wisdom that you're going to try at your game, let us know how it goes, what you took, why, you know, did it work, did it not work? Uh, how would you define an indie game? Give us some examples. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter or the website when we post this and let us know. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, again, as always, please consider supporting us if you can financially through Patreon. It would be amazing. One-time donations from PayPal are awesome. But really just listening, you know, retweeting us, joining us on our Discord, letting us know you're out there really is so much of, of, you know, what we need to keep us motivated and keep us going. So really appreciate everybody who listens and then hangs out with us and comments and that kind of stuff. Um, so anything else from you, Tom, before we sign off, where can people come hang out with you and yell at you about your wrong, bad opinions? You can follow me on Twitter at best car, Tom. I'm slowly starting to come back, you know, uh, and then the obviously discord discord's like my favorite corner of the internet right now. It's just, it's, Great people talking about fun stuff. Yeah, I like Discord a whole lot because you're able to, you know, you just, it's just different. With Twitter, I like, I took a break and then all I did was I put the app back on my phone, but I moved the app like way far away and I just forget it's there. So and I did that intentionally because that place is a hellhole <laughs> that I'm contributing to. <laughs> yes. Right. And you can find me on that hellhole at the RPG Academy. Uh, we have a Facebook. You can email us at therpgacademy at gmail.com. And then once again, please consider joining us on our Discord. It is a closed community, but anybody that wants to get invited can. You just got to let me know and I'll send you the invite. And it really is a great group of people talking about fun stuff. Uh, and so with that, we will sign off by saying, as always, remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time.
The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.